Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Quick note before we do anything. I am recording this episode from a hotel room at a conference. I really needed to get it out, but look, let's be real, the audio quality is kind of bad. So bear with me with this episode, and well, yeah, it'll sound better next time. Remember, go check out the website at dormroomhistory.com slash the history of China for the post about this episode and past episodes. Oh, and be sure to rate the show five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. Nonetheless, the maps on the website help. Trust me. But the website also has my social media links and, of course, the donate button. Look, at the end of the day, I do this for love. But it is a tough balance to keep these episodes churning out while maintaining said job and life. Each episode requires me to more or less write out a six to eight page cited history essay, which alone, look, is not that hard, but all told, it does add up. But how I write my show brings me to my next point before we dive in. This, as the title suggests, is the 49th episode in the History of China show, which means it's my 54th podcast of all time. However, only one show has really been, well, like this one. So, for the 50th episode, I'm going to do a special. I give life updates here and there, but I want to give you all the chance to ask me, well, anything. Want to know my thoughts on Duke basketball? Ask away. Want to know how the episode process works? How I got into all of this? Ask it. Want to know my favorite historical figure? I mean, I don't know. Literally anything ask away. Obviously, it has to be appropriate. Now, I have been getting more and more emails lately, and I cannot thank you guys enough for reaching out at the rate you guys do. So, I will answer all the questions that I can. However, I will offer this up. If you donate at least $1, I know it's not that much, but if you donate at least $1, I will guarantee that your question will be read out and answered. Guaranteed. Zero to 99 cents, well, that's going to be a free-for-all. You can find my email on the website, which is the best way to reach me, but you can DM me on Instagram or comment on the post for this episode on the website with your questions. Literally, ask anything. 50th episode special, ask away, but yes, again, it kind of has to be appropriate. I got to keep my family-friendly rating. So, if you troll me, well... It'll be funny, I'll laugh, but I will not read it out loud. Anyway, last time, Liu Xiu played the long game and ended as Emperor Guangwu of the Han, personally kickstarting the beginning of the Eastern Han Dynasty. So, let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, The History of China, Episode 49, Emperor Guangwu. Emperor Guangwu, as we know, had to thread the needle. He did. He had gamed the geopolitical scene and was able to position himself as first an emperor contender, then sole emperor, then unify the land without really that much bloodshed. I mean, it was still bloody at times, of course, but peaceful means were used a ton. 
Especially compared to other eras, I don't need to tell you all twice how violent ancient China or the ancient world in general for that matter was. Emperor Guangwu, though, utilized clemency and really just wanted to get the old Han Dynasty ship with all of its systems and structure back running again. He had thread the needle, but the stitches were not in yet. Oof, you know what, that is a bad analogy, but I tried. Point is, he arguably did the hardest part already, which was unifying China essentially fully back under his control. But now it was ostensibly peacetime and things needed to get back to normal. I mean, you needed to get the economy going, the government set up, everything needs to get back working. And if you start thinking about all the little moving pieces, it begins to make your mind spin. And this is where the Gungshur Emperor failed. Obviously, the situations were wildly different. I mean, as Emperor Guangwu was in a much better place politically and militarily, but we know things are sensitive and they could still fall apart. I mean, for example, what in the world is Emperor Guangwu going to do about his generals or his advisors? He has consolidated the whole dynasty under his sway. But on the advisor and official side, well, redundancies are an inevitability. General side, with his military, he needs to respect those who fought for him and lead men, but he needs to do it in a way that allows him to create a functional government, not a pseudo-warlordship. Look, he had been dishing out promises left and right, yes, and he needed to uphold those older ones, like when he made Zhang Bu in Shandong a Marquis for his peaceful submission into the dynasty. Overpromising and underdelivering is what cost the Gungshur Emperor. Yes, I know, different situations in many ways, but alas, bear with me here. Emperor Guangwu, in terms of his generals, came up with a very prudent and respectable position. Again, he really is a thinker. He realized he could either give his generals positions of authority, which is risky, or he could just say, here is a lot of money and land, let's be friends and you can give me advice as a friend. Yeah, he opted for the money and land and friendship ploy. He gave his generals, as I mentioned, money on a grading scale based on accomplishment. Usually, though, quite a lot still, thus setting them all up for the good life. No one was going to complain about this. And the best part, the really best part, is that he was able to maintain them as friends, not as co-workers, not as subordinates, not as employees. Friends who could give honest advice without any ability or need to be gaming the political theater. Obviously, though, some did get actual authority positions, whether out of necessity or skill or whatnot, but that was an outlier scenario, not the norm. This was good policy, yes, I mean, this is an incredible move, but it took Emperor Guangwu as a person to be able to pull it off. If he was too brash about not listening to his now friends, or seemed weak and pliable, the whole idea and plan, well, it falters. It takes him as a person at the end of the day to make this work. And work it did. The histories remark on this heavily. It is pretty obvious by now 
And yeah, I know I have been fangirling a bit here now, but Emperor Guangwu was everything needed to pull this off. Pulling this off meaning starting a new, redone Han Dynasty. He was smart, strategic, quick, and determined. He acted decisively and strongly, but took advice. And he was really, really efficient. And that was all shown during his unification campaign and the wars against rebels. And if it's not apparent from his restructuring operation with his officials and generals, these traits and abilities of Emperor Guangwu carried into his peacetime policy. This is important, again, because look at this example. Louis XVI was not objectively a bad king, as Mike Duncan himself puts out, and as do historians. He was average at best, wasn't the devil, wasn't an evil person, and in a normal, prosperous time, he would have came and went, forgettably. Tsar Nicholas II, same thing. The issue is that sometimes the time simply required someone extraordinary, which those two were not. And on the flip side, well, bad emperors like Caligula, well, they're in a good time. And their issues and horrible blunders are blunted by the fact that the system's in shape and can handle it to some degree. This was an extraordinary time in China. And Emperor Guangwu was able to lay the foundation for a rejuvenated dynasty. Something I doubt many other people would have been able to do in the slightest. He was the perfect person at the most perfect time. And his time as emperor mirrored his time before. He was all of those things I described. And this is beating the dead horse now, but being able to take advice yet still be decisive is something actually pretty rare, even today. Most emperors, stereotypically, are impulsive. Let's just say that. They know the power they yield, and they act on their own whims because, well, they can. Even a great emperor can be wrong, though. An absolute decision-making like this leads to problems that you could all probably guess. You got one person deciding how they feel that day is how it's going to, well, affect every single ounce of policy. Then you have emperors that are either absent and let their subordinates make decisions out of sheer laziness, see Commodus, or more like some of the past emperors in our story recently. They take advice, but are woefully indecisive. They may take advice, but not because they were hearing experts give pros and cons of a given decision. They were instead too afraid to make the hard decisions. They let people get in their ear. They don't make decisive decisions. And that was not Emperor Guangwu. And I'll give you an example. He had officials that wanted to reinstate some of the harsher laws of the Han Dynasty back in the Western Han. Emperor Guangwu heard their case, talked it over with advisors, and more or less decided by and large, uh, no, we're not doing that. But we can take a few traditional things from those laws you guys brought up. I mean, we're not going to execute anyone for every small crime to be, you know, reductive here. But... But he did, yeah, bring back some of the traditional laws. It's a compromise, a well-thought-out strategic compromise. And that is how all the servants of the palace were once again required to be eunuchs. Anyway, 
With the fires at home slowly but surely being put out, the Eastern Han began to pull some of the thorns that had gotten stuck in their sides out. The first was, you could probably guess it, uh, they never really go away, the Xiongnu, or what's left of them. They had, as we know well by now, I have beaten this dead horse too, disintegrated into nothing more than a hyper-regional nuisance on the Han Dynasty's most frontier regions. But during the collapse, chaos, and rebuilding, the Xiongnu, but also the Wuhan, amongst other nomad groups, they're not alone now, well, they had all been having a field day with the northern commanderies. Eastern Han Dynasty combat was sporadic with them, but by the time Emperor Guangwu comes onto the scene, the lands had really already been largely abandoned. These were the frontier lands and had been thoroughly neglected during all of the, well, let's just say tough times over the last couple years. But nonetheless, the Eastern Han and Emperor Guangwu reestablished their borders to the north and got things going again. Another thorn in the side of the Eastern Han, though, came via two sisters from modern-day Vietnam. And I'm going to be honest, I will not even pretend to know how to speak Vietnamese. So I will stick to their Chinese names, Zhang Er and Zhang Tse. In the year 40, Zhang Tse fashioned herself as, well, a queen of her own little independent area. And obviously soon after, the two sisters formally rebelled against the Eastern Han Dynasty. Yeah, it's a weird time to try to pull that one off. I mean, you should have done it when, I don't know, everything was in chaos, but alas, to each their own. A campaign by the Eastern Han was launched in 41 to put this nonsense down. And by 43, the Chinese histories report that the Eastern Han decisively beat the sisters in combat and killed them both. Though, I will note, Vietnamese history, on the other hand, largely claims that the sisters saw the writing on the wall and drowned themselves. So, you see some discrepancies. Point is, either way, a lot of people have had trouble in Vietnam, including, well, yeah, you know, but also Qin Shi Huangdi. But the Eastern Han? Light work. And that's two-sided. It's not that the Eastern Han was some sort of Death Star created by the most amazing emperor ever, though, yeah, Emperor Guangwu is pretty amazing. But it goes to show the structures in China that had been existed and co-opted by the Eastern Han. The canals, the roads, the transportation networks, all of that stuff that Qin Shi Huangdi had to make himself, well, now it was being exploited by the Han. The Eastern Han and Emperor Guangwu had to make some tough decisions. Some Hadrian-esque decisions, if you know what I mean. In the year 46, the Xiyu region, X-I-Y-U region, one that we have constantly discussed in the past, again came under threat of some Xiongnu raids. Xiyu was not a kingdom or really a state, it was more of a region made up of different kingdoms the Wusun king, etc. We've had stories about them. And from those stories, we know that Shi Yu was in some way either always rebelling or fighting amongst themselves or switching sides. And when the far-off semi-autonomous region was put under pressure from the Xiongnu, Emperor Guangwu and his government 
looked at that region and that situation, and even though many in the Shiyu region were formally petitioning for assistance from the Han, Emperor Guangwu in the Eastern Han said, look, we just don't have the strength, ability, or, well, time to make it worth protecting. The Shiyu kingdoms more or less wanted another commandery fully stocked with men, but like Hadrian had to make in ancient Rome, Emperor Guangwu made the tough decision to not let pride make him defend some useless territory, and for the time, let said territory go. And that's the thing. These are tough decisions. The reality is, while things are indeed getting better and under Emperor Guangwu, the truth is things are not perfect. A lot of things have to get built back up, but to his credit, early Eastern Han are so far doing most things right. Though I will say, Emperor Guangwu was not perfect though. He, like is so often the case it seems, had lady issues in the years leading up to these conflicts that we just described. Since he was a child, he was with Yin Li Hua. But as he became emperor and she failed to produce sons, Emperor Guangwu entered into a clearly political marriage with the niece of a local warlord. Classic. The new marriage, we're going back in time a little bit, occurred in year 24 and was to Guo Shangtong, who, yeah, bore him a son the next year. And here's the thing, though. Emperor Guangwu was obviously still in love and still with his high school sweetheart of sorts, Yin Li Hua. And he didn't marry Guo Shangtong and make her empress because he had conflicting love and didn't know which one he wanted. He did it out of political necessity. Marriage for a leader at this time, and even up until pretty recently, was as much about children and political maneuvering as it was anything else. And they were probably all not monogamous in the ancient Chinese world, and well, in most places in the ancient world, for probably that reason. The empress was a figurehead. But did love exist in a marriage as we would expect it to today? That's not important, and often not. Finally, though, we are able to do sort of a montage, because from here in year 25, back up to our current story about the time of the Vietnamese scissors in year 40, nothing notable really happens. Policy is made, things happen, oh, and his childhood sweetheart, she bears him a son. In 41, and I know we are jumping around a bit here, but in 41, Emperor Guangwu had finally lost favor with his political marriage wife, Guo Sheng Tong. He didn't hate her, but like, you've heard the circumstances above. He loved someone else, and she has now given him a son, and it's been over 15 years, so, ah, well, you know, the political marriage, the perks of that have probably worn off by now. Instead of simply getting rid of her, or imprisoning her, her being Guo Sheng Tong, the now not favored empress, the cool-headed Emperor Guangwu instead just made her a princess and even kept their son together as crown prince along with giving tons of money to her family. Yeah, no hard feelings, right? And in the year 43, the theory that cool heads create more cool heads was somewhat proven. 
the crown prince, born of the now deposed empress, looked around and said, well, yeah, this is pretty awkward. And he asked to be removed and made something else. You know, just don't make me crown prince. This is strange, which is crazy. Because how often do we see skittish about their position crown princes start offing their dads and killing their siblings? I mean, it's usually a mess. But this is pretty, well, peaceful. It's kind of crazy. But Emperor Guangwu took the opportunity and the crown prince was peacefully made just a regular prince. And Emperor Guangwu's son, via his childhood sweetheart, was made crown prince. In 47, though, and we're moving along here, I know, the Xiongnu had a, uh, had a succession issue. Let's just put it that way. And Emperor Guangwu, like Thanos, sort of collecting the Infinity Stones, saw a chance to put another issue to rest. Seeing a brewing internal conflict within the Xiongnu, he played them off each other, and soon got one and thus the other to eventually submit. Quick and easy. One less problem to worry about. He wasn't always perfect, though. And I know, I make it sound like he is, because, I don't know, he's kind of awesome. But in 49, he sent his most trusted general, who I really have omitted because, well, I didn't want to add too many more names into this story. But this was the guy who was sent and successfully killed the Vietnamese rebel sisters, amongst tons of other stuff. Point is, Emperor Guangwu got old. Some false accusations were made at this general, Emperor Guangwu fell for it, but then the general died of a disease before he could be summoned. Though Emperor Guangwu, and this is not a bright spot on his record, still after the general's death punished him, ripped away titles and land, and looking back, according to the Chinese histories, the accusations were absolutely bananas, I mean they were wrong, and they would indeed be cleared up soon after. Hey, I mean it, I didn't say he was perfect. And, well, he's not perfect because he doesn't live forever. Ten years later, about, in 57, Emperor Guangwu died. Whether this is lack of history surviving and getting to us, or Emperor Guangwu just doing boring policy, I don't know. But the fact that we even got to this point, with a somewhat stable and growing Han Dynasty that fast, should make you too appreciate the massive personality and genius that he was. So that's where I'm going to leave it for this week. Remember guys, really, email me questions, please. I love interacting with all of you and I really want to keep fostering the community we've got going on here. So remember, if you donate at least $1 I will guarantee, bar your question is appropriate, that I will answer it. Anything less than a dollar, well, it'll be a free-for-all, but I guarantee I will probably still get to a lot of questions. So, well, that leaves us with a strong Eastern Han. Remember to go check out the website and rate the show five stars. And I'll see you all next time, so it'll be a 50th episode special, and I really never thought I would get this far. I never really thought it through, but here we are with our largest following, most episode listens, and it's just been incredible. So anyway, 
I'll get sentimental next episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next time on the history of China. <laughs>